Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 19. Now we are looking this morning, we're continuing to look through the story of Elijah and Ahab. This morning, however, Elijah is nowhere to be found in our passage. He's not mentioned at all. Evil King Ahab probably would have loved to hear that. No Elijah in chapter 22. Because Elijah, Ahab considered Elijah to be his enemy. He hated him. If you remember, King Ahab was probably the most, he was the most wicked king Israel had had up to that point. He married the most wicked woman of the Bible, Jezebel. And together, Ahab and Jezebel had waged war on the Lord and against his prophets. They hunted down his prophets. They promoted and enforced Baal worship. They had repeatedly ignored and opposed God's word. And yet, God continued to show mercy to him when he, was, when he humbled himself before God. God continued to send servants to him, telling him God's word. So God, God was merciful to this sinful king despite his resistance to the Lord. God continues to warn him from his evil ways. But man, God will not strive with man forever. There comes a time when God's patience runs out, so to speak, when God has appointed where he will judge the world and when we come to die. There comes a time for all rebels when God decides that their time is up and that they must die. And for Ahab, that time is at hand. 1 Kings 22 is Ahab's last chapter. But God will be warning him the whole way. And brothers and sisters, this passage is a bit scary because it reminds us of our hardness of hearts. It reminds us of how little regard we have for God's word and how foolish it is to disregard it if God says something we don't want him to say. So let's not make that mistake this morning. Let's listen carefully to God's word. Let me pray before we read. Lord, we are so thankful that we have before us many copies of your complete word to us, the Bible. We thank you for your son. What we need, Lord, now is ears to hear and hearts to, to trust, to believe, to respond to your word the right way. Give us faith that we might know what it is you are pleased to say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 22, I'll be reading verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, 
will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, well, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, whom, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, made it for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. This is God's word. Sometimes God strikes the wicked when they feel most comfortable. As we've listened to story after story of the wickedness of King Ahab, we might forget that from a worldly perspective, King Ahab was actually a pretty successful ruler. Ahab was the seventh king of the northern kingdom. Half of his predecessors lasted for two years or less. One of them only reigned for seven days. But this was Ahab's 22nd year as king. 
And under his rule, the kingdom had grown in almost every way. Cities were built, like Jericho. Cities were enlarged. Under his uh, alliances were formed with other nations. Military battles were fought and were won. The economy had usually been strong. And as a demonstration of his wealth, uh, Ahab had a great ivory palace built for himself on a high hill in Samaria, a white house, you might say. This chapter begins on a high note as well. It's been three years since there was war between Aram, Assyria, and Israel. And from a worldly perspective, Ahab has reason to be confident. He has reason to be comfortable. What need does he have of the Lord or of the Lord's word? He's comfortable. But here is one thing that was bothering Ahab. Syria has his city, Ramoth Gilead, which was situated at a strategic place along a trade route east of the Jordan River. That city used to belong to the tribe of Gad. At some point, Syria took it for themselves. And Ahab wants it back. Now, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, was coming over. It says he was coming down, but actually he's coming north. Everything from Judah was down because of the mountains there. But Jehoshaphat comes over, and Ahab doesn't want to waste this opportunity. So he wants to convince King Jehoshaphat to help him as he goes to fight against Syria. Uh, Partly because the help is always good, but also it's good to have your friends in the south, to have your friends in the south at peace with you if you're at war in the north. But having them fight with you is even better. Plus, Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, who might be the second worst woman in the Bible, but they are now family. So Ahab says, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? You know, us, I'm of, of course, his kingdom. And we're doing nothing to take it out of the king of Aram, out of Syria. And then he says to Jehoshaphat, will you go to battle with me against Ramoth Gilead? And the king of Judah says, yes, I will do so. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. We will support you. But why don't we first ask the Lord if we should go up? Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king. You might notice here in your Bible that the, the word Lord is all caps. If you have that in your Bible, it's because this is the English way of conveying that the word Yahweh is being used. You'll see in the next verse, when the prophets prophesy, it's not all caps. This is more the more general word for master. So Jehoshaphat is specifically asking for a prophet of the Lord to inquire of the Lord of Yahweh. Now, Ahab doesn't think this is a problem. He has 400 prophets, 400 yes men, who will say whatever he wants them to say. That is quite clear from this passage that these guys are basically cheerleaders. And if you prophesy something that he doesn't want to hear, he doesn't want you around, like Micaiah. So Ahab asked them, 
shall I go to battle? And they all say, go, the Lord will surely give it into your hand. So you see, Jehoshaphat, we are, we're covered. There's no need to worry about my plan. But Jehoshaphat knows that there's something wrong here. He says, so he says again, well, is there not a, a prophet of Yahweh that we might ask? Is there not a real prophet here? We all know what's going on in this, with this facade. Now, later on, these 400 prophets will speak, and they'll say they're speaking in Yahweh's name. But Ahab and Jehoshaphat both clearly admit here that these guys are not real prophets in the genuine sense. These men are imposters, and both of the kings know it. But in God's great mercy, there is still one man who speaks the truth, still one prophet of the Lord. And we expect him to say, Elijah, the Tishbite. But out of the blue, he says, there is one guy left, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And we wonder, who, who is this? Who is Micaiah? And this is just another indication that we don't know everything uh, that's going on in God's plan. God raises up prophets, and he brings them into the story that we are told at certain points. And he's got 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Micaiah was one of them. Elijah was one of them. Elisha was one of them. Obadiah, the hundred prophets in the cave. We're hearing stories about them as they pop up. But God has his, his plan in motion already, and we only get to hear some of it. So Micaiah is someone who has prophesied to, to Ahab multiple times in the past. We can tell this from, from Ahab's reaction. There is one guy left, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him. So, I mean, he's, at least he's honest, right? I, there is one prophet of the Lord left, and I hate him because he always says bad things about me. This reveals Ahab's heart rather clearly. If the prophet of the Lord, the one prophet of the Lord left, is always saying bad things about you, it's probably because you're bad. And what you need is to repent. That should be your concern. God is not happy with me. God has sent his prophet to tell me he's not happy with me. I must change. I must repent. Instead, he tries to shut him up and to drown him out with 400 other voices that he knows are wrong. So you can see how Ahab treats God's word. He wants to shut him up. But Fine, Jehoshaphat, if you want to hear him, I'll bring him. I'll bring him so we can get the ball rolling here. So when Micaiah gets there, he is greeted with this remarkable scene. It is impressive. It is intimidating. Both the king of Israel and the king of Judah are at the gate of Samaria. There are two thrones, and the text mentions their royal robes you know, flowing down. The two kings on two thrones, and there is a crowd of 400 of these prophets prophesying. It reminds you of something, doesn't it? Elijah on Mount Carmel. 
a much more famous scene. Elijah was there by himself. King Ahab was there. 400 prophets of Baal were there dancing around for hours, cutting themselves and yelling. But this scene, not as famous, might be much more difficult, much more intimidating. There are 400 prophets who claim to be prophesying in the Lord's name. There's not one king. There's two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And it, might, it would be much easier for Micaiah to wonder, you know, am, I, am I wrong here? Both of the kings of God's people are here against me. 400 prophets who claim to follow the Lord are here against me. It's a difficult place for Micaiah to be. And if they're voting on whether or not they should go, it is unanimous. 400 to zero right now. Two kings, two thrones, 400 prophets prophesying victory. Zedekiah, who must be the leader of these false prophets, he's even made himself some props for the occasion, some horns of iron. Thus says Yahweh, he, with these you will push the army and the, the Syrians, you will gore them until they are destroyed. And this, this uh, makes things difficult for Micaiah to come here and to speak, to be the one voice opposing the kings and the prophets. These men are even claiming to prophesy in the Lord's name. Thus says the Lord. I would say that false teachers in the church are much more dangerous than 400 false teachers outside the church. In this situation, it's going to look like one prophet just didn't get the memo. 400 prophets prophesying in the Lord's name, all united in agreement. So, should be no pressure for Micaiah, right? But Ahab doesn't want to take any chances. So the messenger who goes to Micaiah gives him a message first. He says, please don't rock the boat. Everybody's prophesying positively about this. You don't need to allow, let your voice be with one accord with them. Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Speak favorably. Again, they don't, they don't want God to say to speak freely. They don't want to know, Lord, tell me what you want and I will submit to it. It's, Lord, say what you want if it's what I want. So this is Ahab's view of God's word. Unfortunately, his view is still the view of far too many in God's church today. Ahab thinks that God's word can be manipulated. He's upset, not that he's bad. He's upset that Micaiah prophesies bad things. He's not upset that he's God's enemy. He's upset that Micaiah says so. So just say what all the other prophets are saying. Don't tell us what God wants to say. Tell us what we want to hear. My question is, what is the point of religion like that? 
Really? Why bother asking if you don't want to know what God thinks? Why bother coming to church if all you're looking for is an echo chamber of someone who will affirm your beliefs, the things that you really wanted? Why pretend to care what God thinks at all? Ahab obviously doesn't care. He won't obey what Micaiah says anyway. And besides, he's got 400 other prophets who will prophesy whatever he wants to hear, so he can just listen to their sermons instead. You know, we have a consumer-oriented church. It's made much more available to us by the Internet now. Figure out a belief that you want to hear. Search online. You'll find somebody who, who affirms that. There are thousands of pastors with thousands of sermons online, and if one of them bothers you with what he says about the Bible, you can find a commentary, you can find a preacher who will say just what you want and argue for that. If you don't want to believe in hell, there's plenty of teachers who will tell you that hell doesn't exist. If you want to believe that there is a hell, but everybody goes to heaven anyway because God's just like that, there will be plenty of people who tell you that too. If you want to believe homosexuality is okay, you will find people to argue for that. So it is with all beliefs out there. Whatever you want to believe, there's someone who will argue that problem passage away for you. And it doesn't matter usually if it's a good argument or not. What matters is whether they reach the conclusion that you wanted them to say in the beginning. And why do we do this? Why do people do this? Is it not because we really want to be our own gods? And we want to pretend? You know, the, the, the key test of whether or not you're following the Lord is when you have to deny yourself. But that's the beginning. Right? If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not hard to follow a God who always says what you want him to say. It's hard to follow a God who tells you things that cause you to repent, that tells you things that you don't want to hear. That's, that's the true test of faith. So let's not deceive ourselves this way. There is no point in a religion that is just an echo chamber of what you wanted to hear. The truth is still the truth. Uh, people like to say, my truth. I know that always annoys me. There's no such thing. It's God's truth. It's true or it's not. It's objective. The truth is still the truth, and we are to humble ourselves before the Lord and pray that we understand his word correctly. And then, even if we don't like it, submit to it. We are to approach and receive God's word with this humble attitude. Otherwise, how will we grow? I know one of my biggest obstacles to learning languages, which I've, I've had to study for a number of years, is that I want the words to be correct as they come out of my mouth. And so I think about the sentence, I form it, and then I, it comes out. And so I don't speak as much as I should. The people who really learn well, they speak all the time, and they're looking to get corrected. They don't want to speak 20 
correct sentences, they want to be corrected 20 times a day. That's how you learn when you're corrected. We often think we just want people to say, we want to hear what we believe. But how often has God changed your mind from the Bible? Hopefully, you have a good foundation of faith now, I hope. But you are not there. You're not there. I'm not there. So we have to have this submissive attitude, longing for God to help correct our mistakes, point out where we're wrong. That's how we grow. If we think there's no room for correction, then you've stopped growing. And that's a dangerous place to be thinking that we've already achieved perfection. But this is what Ahab has done. He's accumulated this small army of false prophets who just tell him what he wants to hear, and he'll just pretend that it's God's will. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is so dangerous. And yet we're all tempted to do it. We ought to pray that God would give us ears to value his truth above our desires. That God would be gracious enough to let us feel uncomfortable when we're wrong and would change us. Now, Micaiah knows that Ahab won't listen. So at first, I think sarcastically, he says what Ahab wants to hear. Ahab And Ahab obviously gets it. He responds, How many times must I adjure you to speak nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So you see Ahab here is admitting that he knows the other prophets are speaking falsely. When when, When Micaiah says the same things they say, he's like, No, tell me the truth this time. So Micaiah tells Ahab the hard truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Now, Ahab clearly understands what that means as well. Ahab is the master. He is the king of Israel. And somehow... He will die in the battle. And his flock, Israel, the sheep, they will be scattered. And yet, somehow, they will go home in peace. You'll die, Ahab, and Israel doesn't need you anyway. They'll return to their homes in peace. So Ahab understands this immediately, and he says, See, I knew he would prophesy evil concerning me. He always does that. Now, on the one hand, this is a very unlikely prophecy. Israel will go to battle, not be destroyed, but somehow the king dies, and then they'll return in peace. What are the odds of that? If you ever play chess, you know the king is the last guy to fall. Everybody protects the king. So it would be very strange, actually, of course, This is what will actually happen if you read the rest of the chapter. Spoiler alert, don't blame me, blame Micaiah. But Ahab dies in this chapter. Israel goes home in peace. But this is the prophecy. The king will die, 
The army will be okay. They will return home in peace. Well, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us to value God's word. Ahab has no one to blame here but himself. God's going to warn him the whole way. I think it was Robert Murray McShane said that when the fire and brimstone comes down, of, of you know, the fire and brimstone of God's judgment comes down, it will be wet with God's tears. That he warns us the whole way. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, not even the death of Ahab. He gives us time and time again to repent. The question is, will we shut our ears to God's word or will we listen and obey? It's a reminder to us of how much God's word is opposed even by many who say they proclaim it. It's still the case today. There are so many false teachers in the church. So beware when Scripture is taught in such a way that you never feel challenged. You always feel comfortable. Nothing hard is ever said. Nothing disagreeable is ever said from the pulpit. Jesus warned us, beware of the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction and the many people who will encourage you to follow, to, to follow them there. Pray that you might not be led astray. Sometimes Satan attacks the church from without. Sometimes he attacks the church from within. And sometimes the lies sound so good. But the, God's truth is always better for us. It would be easier for you to feel more comfortable in the world, the wicked world that doesn't love God, if the Bible didn't say some of the things that it says. But it says it, and you know it says it. So pray that we might not be led astray from the pressure of being different in the world. God's truth is always better for you than conforming to the world. Now, what a blessing it could have been for Ahab to listen to Micaiah. What a blessing it was to still have one guy out of all the hundreds, one advisor who actually tells him the truth. It would have been good if he were only willing to listen. Ahab, like he always did, opposed the truth to his own destruction. Now, it's hard to stand up to opposition like Micaiah did here. Moses knew it when he spoke against Pharaoh and his magicians. Elijah knew it when he spoke against King Ahab and the 400 false prophets of Baal. Jeremiah knew it. Paul knew it. Martin Luther knew it. You know, a week ago, we were remembering Reformation Day. There was a time in 1521 at the Diet of Worms where Martin Luther had to come up and stand before possibly the most powerful man on earth, Charles V. And there he was called to recant his writings. And he said this, unless I'm convinced by Scripture or by clear reason, 
I cannot recant. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not recant. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And he did. The Lord Jesus knew most of all what it was like to stand for the truth when the king is opposed to you, when all the teachers of Jerusalem are opposed to you. We are called to stand firm as well, like Micaiah. Micaiah will be persecuted because of this. The Lord Jesus was persecuted most of all. He was betrayed by his own people, condemned by the political leaders and the religious scholars, crucified by criminals, uh, between criminals, put to death by men, but raised by God. And this is what Peter always returns to. Put to death by men, but raised by God. You see, Men do not have the last word in this world. It doesn't matter how many hundreds are united against the truth. Men do not have the last word. Even when God's people are killed for his sake, they will end up being more than conquerors. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you have that perspective. We live right now in a time when you can say God's truth and usually not be persecuted very much for it. It's not that case always everywhere else in the world. I've seen it. One day it might be worse than it is for us now. I would, I would expect it. We must be willing to stand firm for God's word. And the way you do this is by having a greater view of God than you have the people around you. Fearing God more than you fear man. And God would be more important to you than all the peer pressure and intimidation that the world places upon you. We might not see it in big ways, big persecution, but there's also the subtle persecution. You go off, go off to college you know, there's the temptation to just fit in with the crowd and do what everybody else is doing. But we must keep God first in our minds, greater than all the peer pressure that's around us. Now, Micaiah knew this. Now, I have no doubt standing before these two kings on their two thrones and their royal robes, 400 prophets, and having the only dissenting message must have been quite difficult. But I want you to notice, and this is why I read verse 19, that there are two throne scenes in this passage. And I think that we are meant to notice this. Because you see this emphasis on their two thrones, their robes, the way they looked, what the scene was like when Micaiah got there. Because we're going to get to this greater throne scene. It in, in verse 19, Micaiah says this, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Now, 
How much more awesome of a scene that must have been. This passage reminds me of Isaiah 6, which happened right around 100 years after this. Micaiah sees this vision first. It's pretty easy to mark the dates of it because Isaiah's vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Micaiah's vision happened almost on the day that Ahab died. But he sees Isaiah 6, 100 years later, would see the Lord on his throne and the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, Micaiah saw this earlier. He saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven surrounding him. Can you imagine seeing that? Which scene do you think was more impressive? The two kings on their two thrones at the gate of Samaria with 400 prophets? Or the Lord on his throne? 400 false prophets? Or the whole host of heaven on his right and left? And now you see the perspective has changed, hasn't it? We can see where Micaiah's confidence comes from. He is not intimidated by the this scene of the two kings. He has seen something much greater. God is bigger to him than man is. And shouldn't it be that way for us as well? If God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would have that same perspective that Micaiah had. One, where God is big and people are comparatively small, not the other way around. One, where God's word matters even when it's not popular. One, where our trust and confidence in the Lord is so great that we could say with David in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Let us learn to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would enlarge yourself in our eyes. Give us eyes to see the reality. You are on your throne. You are greater. You are true. Help us to see through all the lies, the intimidation, false teaching that so easily entangles us. Help us to submit to your word, to fear you, and to trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.